This is a Federal News Network podcast. Systems outages and patient safety concerns have plagued the Veterans Affairs Department's new electronic health record. And not surprisingly, that's leading to some pretty heavy scrutiny. Top members of the House VA committee are telling the agency to pause future rollouts of the new EHR until the problems can get fixed. And the vendor, Cerner, says it's also considering its own technical review. It also wants to make sure the system is stable and reliable. Yeah, this is getting tough. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. All right, you went to that hearing, Jory. What are the lawmakers most concerned about in what is turning out to be something of a disaster for the VA? There's a couple of high-profile recent events that lawmakers are particularly troubled by. This week alone, there have been two outages at Walla Walla, the second site for the go-live of this EHR. And over at Spokane, the first site for the go-live, there was a an incident where a veteran's heart medication fell off the list of his active prescriptions on his health record that caused him to run out of that medication and... The chairman of the VA subcommittee on technology modernization, Frank Mervin, said that patient was later hospitalized from a cardiac episode. So in his words, this is a real worst case scenario that patient safety is being linked to failures from the CHR. And what do the members of Congress want VA to do here? What are they asking for? Well, in light of these incidents, as well as some outages that were going on earlier this month, Lawmakers from the subcommittee and from the full committee are asking for VA to pause future rollouts of this EHR until there's a deeper dive into the root cause of these problems here. Now, that is complicated for a couple of reasons. One, there's going to be a third go live at the end of this month in Columbus, Ohio. That is going to be a medium-sized facility. The previous two, Walla Walla and Spokane, have been smaller facilities. And meanwhile, over the horizon, later this year, the VA has plans to roll this EHR out at big, large, complex facilities in Seattle and Ann Arbor, Michigan. So the way that lawmakers see it, if they can't handle it in smaller facilities the problems are going to ramp up being more pronounced in larger facilities. Right. So the lawmakers want the uh, Broadway show to stay in New Haven before it goes to the big stage. That's essentially a good way to put it. And at the top, we said that Cerner was going to look into the whole thing itself. I mean, it's got a vested interest here to make sure this does come out right. So what is the company doing? Right. Well, in light of these recent outages, Cerner says that they are going to do a technical review of the system to make sure that from an IT perspective, it is you know structurally sound and able to uh, go live at other facilities. We heard from Patrick Sargent, who's the senior vice president and general manager for Cerner Government Services. Here's what he told the subcommittee. We have made a determination that we need to do likely an independent look at our system just to make sure that we're not missing something with regards to the stability of the system. So we'll likely plan to do a technical review of the system to kind of make sure that we are doing everything properly. I guess that makes sense because Cerner has dozens and dozens of commercial instances that have been running, I guess, successfully for years here. What did the VA officials say about that particular issue of the setup and configuration and the IT background? VA officials were quick to point out that, one, the Cerner system is already gone live at about half of the Defense Department's facilities. So in terms of Cerner being an issue, they say that is not the problem here, that this is a safe system for VA to use. As far as the 
switch over from the legacy 40-year-old Vista system to the Cerner system. Terry Adiram, the executive director of the EHR Modernization Integration Office, says that this was always going to be an issue, but it's not a technical issue, she says. It's really just a matter of getting the right mix of training for personnel and managing that change management aspect of things, making sure that employees feel comfortable with the new system. This enterprise-wide effort is one of the most complex clinical and business transformation endeavors in the department's history. Implementing a new EHR in any organization, no matter the size, is hard. But implementing one in a healthcare system as large and complex as VA is a tremendous challenge. Yes, as the man that had a heart attack when his medicine run out can certainly testify. And the Inspector General of the Veterans Affairs Department has also weighed in on this, Jory. The office of the IG has weighed in here. They have issued a number of pretty serious reports saying that the EHR rollout has increased risks for errors in veteran health care and that the long-term vision for the EHR rollout is complicated given how it's been going already. This is a project that is going to be $16 billion in cost, a 10-year timeline, and it's supposed to be completed by 2028. But we heard from the deputy IG, David Case. He says that at this point, VA doesn't have an integrated master schedule for the entirety of the project, so it doesn't know how the implementation is going to roll out for years to come. And he says that raises some serious concerns. And it's more than just identifying dates on a calendar. They have to account for work that has to be done, whether it's infrastructure upgrades, IT, physical infrastructure, that training that has to be done. And they have to build in a risk assessment with a best case, a worst case, and a most likely case. And to date, that hasn't been done. And all that is going to impact budget. All right. So now what is the current situation, Jory? Is VA going to halt further installations? Are they going to move ahead? Because, I mean, Congress can't, from that standpoint, from a standpoint of a hearing, tell them to not go ahead. It remains to be seen what happens with the VA, but let's recognize that, you know, right now Congress is in the middle of budget season. It is hearing from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough and other VA officials in terms of the funding here. And what we have heard from officials is that they are not prepared to offer the funding here until their concerns are met. So in this case, the congressional power of the purse here looms large over VA. Right. And McDonough wasn't there to testify personally, but didn't he also, when he got into office at the beginning of the Biden administration, call a pause to the whole EHR so that they could review it? And they gave it a more or less qualified bill of health to proceed. Right. Yeah. Early in his tenure as VA secretary, there have already been some stops and starts here. We saw last summer that VA did say it was going to do a pause of future rollouts until it got to the bottom of things. This year, we have seen those rollouts happen after it has gone through a strategic pause and looked at these issues. But it could very well be the case that we see yet another pause until the VA goes through again and sees what's really happening here. And speaking of McDonough, and while we have you, Jory, he has issued some guidance, information, prediction for the return to the office of those VA employees that have been teleworking. We got a little bit more clarity from McDonough recently about the office reentry for VA employees who are still out on telework. What we had heard previously is that 
bargaining unit employees would be coming back in May. Uh, what we hear is that that is still the case for some employees. We're going to see an office reentry in early May for some VA employees. Some will happen later in May, but some others will happen in June. Now, granted, this is for a little bit of context, roughly affecting about 20% of the VA's workforce. Obviously, employees who work for the Veterans Health Administration, they have been on the front lines working for really the entirety of the COVID-19 pandemic. So they are not the employees we're talking about here, but perhaps people more in the Veterans Benefits Administration or some other aspects of the agency. But definitely there are among those employees returning that may not be medical, but nevertheless that have high touch in one form or another with the veterans. Yeah, I mean, this can really be quite a mix of employees that we're talking about here, but some who may have more of a face-to-face interaction with with veterans. All right. And coming up next, we're going to be speaking with attorney John Mahoney, who represents lots of bargaining unit employees in many different labor situations with the federal government. And he'll have a lot to say about what they can actually bargain, what you can't bargain when it comes to returning to work. That'll be up next. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of his coverage here at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Okay, close your eyes and imagine. Well, unless you're driving. Yes, imagine you bought a scratch ticket from the Iowa Lottery. Or someone gave you one. Yes, right, and you scratch, and you've won. One big. Yes, in fact, there are 13 holiday games with big cash prizes. And if you don't win, play it again. You can still win up to $100,000 in the VIP club. But you have to enter and see rules and complete details at ialottery.com slash VIP. Yes, thank you. 